Well, good morning, church. What a joy it is to worship our God and King together. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Colossians, so please grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Our scripture reading will be starting from Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Every one of us has a morning routine. We get out of bed, and in some kind of order, we run to the bathroom and change our clothes. My son Hudson loves pajamas. Maybe you've seen him at church with his pajamas or at bridge. Going to church, he's got his pajamas on. Going to the store, it's pajamas. Going to the park, it's pajamas. When he rolls out of bed, he's all set. Most of us would put on our clothes for the day after we get up, but Hudson puts them on the night before. But the point is, either the night before or in the morning, we put off our old clothes and put on our new clothes. We put off the old and put on the new. As Christians, we put off the old man and put on the new man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our covering, our life, our identity. But it's not a one-and-done deal. Just as we change clothes day by day, daily, we put on Christ daily. So let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Our scripture reading will start from verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would meet with us, continue to meet with us, continue to encourage and bless us as we gather as your people. Bless the preaching of your word that, God, you would use me somehow, that we might bear much fruit in our lives by your spirit and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, in this section, Paul is building an argument. He is going somewhere. And to know where he's headed, we need to know where he's been. As Christians, we let the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures. Because the Word of God is our highest and ultimate authority, we let God's Word set the terms of the debate to answer our questions and to give us the truth. We don't stand over God's Word, but God's Word stands over us. So what came before verses 14 and 15 will teach us, will inform us about verse 14 and 15. And so just as a quick review, for the last couple of weeks, Tim spoke on five identity markers. Number one, new creations. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Number two, absolute equals. Here in the church, there is no white collar or blue collar, married or single, white or black, Republican or Democrat, but Christ is all and in all. Number three, chosen possessions. In Christ, you belong to God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Number four, consecrated persons. Consecrated simply means set apart. You've been set apart to no longer live for yourself, but the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. Number five, beloved children. It means that the Father, God the Father, relates to us as he would relate to his Son, Jesus Christ. So when the Father says to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, with you I'm well pleased, 
Well, in Christ, He says that about you. You are His beloved, and with you He is well pleased. And those five identity markers lead to five action items. We are to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Putting on Christ means putting on the new man, the new way of life. And these matter because body life, community, church life can be hard sometimes. If you've never been hurt or disappointed or struggled with the church, well, you need to know something very important about us. Risen Hope Church is not a perfect church. Risen Hope Church is not a perfect church. I think we all kind of know that. Kind of know that just like we kind of know that eating donuts is bad for you, but that doesn't stop us from eating donuts, right? And I'm just as guilty as anyone else. I love baked goods. So we know in a theoretical, in a, well, I know donuts are bad kind of way, but in reality, we kind of expect different. We kind of expect the church not to let us down. That somehow the church won't fall short, won't fail to love or forgive or to show grace. And you're thinking we're a perfect church, well, you definitely got the wrong church. Uh, We're sinners, saved by grace and becoming more and more like Jesus. But there's so many parts of us that still aren't like Jesus. So then we have to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We have to be proactive and reactive in a godly way, especially when the church falls short. We proactively show compassion and kindness and humility. But we also need to reactively and in a godly way show patience and forgiveness when others offend us, when they say or do something careless or even sinful. This is where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to be proactive. Oh, I'm going to let that guy in in the freeway. They're merging in. But it's another thing to be reactive in a godly way, choosing not to be angry when someone cuts in front of you on the freeway. We can think of the reactive part as forbearance and forgiveness, as Tim taught us last week. Forbearance refuses to give up, and forgiveness refuses to get even. With all that in view, the five identity markers and the five action items, let's look at our passage today. Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called to one body, and be thankful. Most of all, Christians put on love, which binds us together in a community of peace and thankfulness. This is our overarching idea today. Most of all, Christians put on love, which binds us together in a community of peace and thankfulness. Above all these, put on love. Above all the other five, put on love. These five things lead us somewhere. They lead us to love. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. As we unpack this call to put on love, we're going to look at two questions. We're going to break it down into two questions. What is love and what does love do? What is love and what does love do? So number one, what is love? What is Paul's definition? How does the Bible define love? Well, Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. 
And Jesus Christ himself laid down his life for us on a Roman cross. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, thank you for joining us this morning. We hope that you see that we're just like everyone else in the world and certainly no better than anyone else. We're a people that we've realized we're desperately sick with sin, but it's actually worse than that. We're not just sick with sin, we're dead in sin with no spiritual life on the road to eternal judgment and hell. But then Jesus came. Jesus came, called us out of the grave, much like coming to the tomb of the dead man Lazarus and calling out, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man Lazarus came up and out of the grave. And that's happened to us. And we want you to know and experience that as well. The freedom of all of your sins forgiven and assurance of eternal life with God on that final day of judgment. But the only way to enter in is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Jesus Christ alone, based on his perfect life and death on the cross in our place, suffering the penalty we deserved. So if you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, do so today. Humbly acknowledge your sin, that you fall short, and that you also desperately need a Savior. So Jesus defines what love is. He laid down our lo- his life for ours to pay the penalty for our sins, to satisfy the wrath and justice of God on our behalf. We broke God's law, but Jesus paid our fine. And so Jesus shows us that love is radically God-centered. It's about God's glory. It's about God's holiness. It's about God's commands. But there's so much confusion today. The movie industry would tell us that love is a feeling, it's those warm affections, and that following those feelings is the path to fulfillment and happiness. Our culture tells us that, hey, if two people, two men, they want to be married because they're in love, who are you to stand in the way of that? Who are you to deny two men their happiness and fulfillment, to deny their love? Who are you to judge? Well, in his book, Rule of Love, Jonathan Lehman writes, Love excludes and leaves some things behind. Love includes some things and excludes others. Love draws boundaries. Love makes judgments. Love is a judging activity. Maybe you've never heard of that before. Maybe you never think of those two words in the same sentence. But let's think of it. I love this woman. Teresa is my wife, not that woman. I'll take chocolate and not vanilla. I choose death, not life. So if love is a judging activity, choosing one over the other, God alone must be the standard, the yardstick by which we measure love. Otherwise, we're left with total chaos and about 8 billion definitions of love, one for each person on planet Earth. And that yardstick from God has a definite shape with commandments that draw bright lines. Romans 13, verses 9 and 10, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So if we want to know how to love, how God defines love, we have to look at his commandments, Law and love are actually two sides of the same coin. 
Love fulfills the law, and law is summed up by love. Law teaches us how to love. And God ultimately defines what love is, not our own feelings. And that makes sense. If we're, if we're going to treat others with compassion and kindness, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to lie to them. You're not going to take advantage of them. You're not going to murder them, either physically or verbally with your words or emotionally by harboring hatred. But those five things we've looked at, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, are stepping stones leading you to the summit, the summit of love, where Paul says, above all, put on love. Love is that mountaintop summit where everything leads you straight there. Pastor Kent Hughes explains, it is possible to have the five garments and not have love, but it is impossible to have love and not have all of the five garments. It is impossible to have love and not have all of the other five. You see, without love, you haven't really put on those other things. You haven't actually carried out those five other action items. Those five other things tells us what love looks like. They give us the shape. They define the shape of love. So let's say you have compassion and kindness but not love. Then it really becomes self-righteousness. I feel good about how good I am. Or it becomes selfishness. I'm doing this because I'm expecting something back. But God doesn't just define love, giving us the standard. He is the reference point. Any true love has to be God-centered. Because when love is centered on something else, it ultimately destroys that object. Take our children, for example. Again, Jonathan Lehman helpfully captures it this way. When you or I love our children ultimately for our own sake, or even for their sakes, the universe begins to shrink. Loving them ultimately for our sake means exploiting them. Loving them for their sake means spoiling them. In both cases, things get ugly. Therefore, we must love our children for God's sake. See, if we love them apart from God, we're exploiting them for our own benefit, or we're spoiling them. That means that these love passages must be read in reference to God such as the passage from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As we look at a passage like that, that's a popular passage. Even non-Christians appreciate that. But we have to under- read that from a God-centered lens. Jesus himself is that living, breathing reality of that passage. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast, isn't arrogant or rude. And because Jesus is patient and kind to me, he's proven that by dying on the cross on my behalf. Well, I must be patient and kind to other people. And as Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, well, in Christ, I too must learn to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things. And this God-centered love means that we must love others for God's sake, not ultimately for our own sake, not ultimately for their own sake. 
And sometimes that means bringing correction, confronting sin. When we see a brother or sister trapped in sin, sin that will ultimately destroy themselves and their relationship with God, well, we have to act. We wouldn't let our child play in the street simply because they thought it was fun. The child's life is in danger. Well, how much more when our brother or sister is running headlong into sin, be it pornography or adultery or lying or greed or pride? Brothers, if any of anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6.1. So what is love? A God-centered devotion to the good of other people. God-centered. And what does love do? What does this God-centered devotion to the good of others do? Let's look at verse 14 again. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is what love does. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. But what does everything refer to? Can't get into a lot of detail, but uh, everything here, I believe, refers to us, the church. Love binds us together, brings us all together. Love must bind us together in the body of Christ if we are to live as his people. As God has loved us, we will love one another. If we belong to the triune God who dwells in perfect unity, then we will aim to dwell in perfect unity with one another. A unity in diversity that is far greater than any human difference. There's a divine love that bonds us as God's people more strongly than any other bond. There's a saying that blood is thicker than water, right? I'm sure you've heard of it. That somehow, that, that your family bonds, the bonds of kinship, the bonds of blood, your family bonds are stronger than the bonds of friendship. Blood is thicker than water. But spirit is thicker than blood. Our spiritual bond in Christ is stronger than biological bonds of earthly family. That means if your biological family doesn't know Christ, doesn't know the Lord, then you have more in common with your spiritual family than your biological family. And we see that when church members bring meals for one another, visit the sick in the hospital, open our homes and our lives, and make sacrifices for the good of the spiritual family. And so, church, that's why we pray. Sometimes this is really hard. We can't do it in our own power. And so, church, we must pray. And as we think about our upcoming time of prayer and fasting, let us pray that God would grow our love and unity together as a church family. And that we would pray as Paul prayed, that the church's love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So love, this God-centered devotion to the good of others, binds us together, unifies us as one spiritual family. But Paul isn't done. We continue on and see that the summit stretch, stretches even further beyond what we expect. And you might be thinking, well, what more could Paul possibly say once he's talked about love? Isn't the greatest of these love? Isn't love the fulfillment of all the commandments? What more could be said? Is Paul just tacking on something he forgot? Oh, whoops, forgot to mention this and that. Well, let's look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. 
Paul gives us two additional virtues for the church body, peace and thankfulness. We'll take these one at a time. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Peace has three different aspects, our peace with God, or peace within ourselves, and peace with other people. Jesus has secured our peace with God through his blood on the cross. It's a peace that Jesus promised in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let, your, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And when you and I know and experience that peace with God and that peace within as a result, it spills over into our relationships with other people. But what does it mean to let the peace of Christ rule? It almost seems contradictory, the word peace and the word rule. Well, the Greek verb translated rule is used for someone who is a judge or umpire, someone who makes the call in a dispute. Think of a baseball umpire. When baseball players take to the field, they submit to the umpire. The umpire has the authority to call balls and strikes. The pitcher might think it's a strike. The batter might think it's a ball, but it's the umpire who decides. When the umpire calls a strike, it's a strike. When the umpire calls a ball, it's a ball. End of story. And when we have two competing options, two different ways we could respond to a situation, the peace of Christ is our umpire. The peace of Christ is our umpire. So in a conflict, the peace of Christ decides. The peace of Christ has to make the call. As one commentator puts it, peace must be given preference. Peace must be given preference. So whatever promotes, whatever protects, whatever preserves peace in the body of Christ must rule the day. So when you're confronted with gossip about someone, the peace of Christ stops the gossip. It stops with you. When you're offended that someone didn't keep their word or when you're disappointed at a fellow brother or a leader in the church, the peace of Christ leads you to humbly, honestly, and directly speak to the person about your offense, about your hurt. When you take offense at another brother's views or opinions, You refuse to be divisive or sow seeds of division in the church. You'd rather swallow your pride and remain silent than do anything to hurt the body of Christ. Church, letting the peace of Christ rule means that given two choices, you choose what preserves the health and integrity and the peace of the church body. If Christ is your Lord, then he must be your umpire. Christ is your Lord, then he must be your umpire. When I'm confronted with a choice, I must choose what protects and promotes peace. And like love, peace bonds us together. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells the church to be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And church, that brings us to our last part, and be thankful, and be thankful. Just three simple words, almost seem like a throwaway line, so easy to miss this final thought in this section, but this reminder should immediately remind us of all the ways that Paul expresses gratitude. Paul opens Colossians with, we always thank God 
the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, Colossians 1.3. Being established in the faith, growing in your maturity, growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ, means abounding in thanksgiving, Colossians 2.7. As one commentator puts it, gratitude promotes peace. Gratitude promotes peace. Paul isn't just tacking on a bunch of ideas. They're all interrelated. They're all interconnected. And considering all that God has done for us in Christ, how can we not be thankful? How can we not be thankful for for Jesus, for, for his perfect life, for his atoning death, for his glorious resurrection, his heavenly intercession at the right hand of the Father, his future return in power and glory? How can we not be thankful? When we forget to give thanks, when we grumble and complain, when we take God's gifts for granted, we align ourselves, actually, with the devil and the unbelieving world. As Jeremiah Burroughs points out in The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, the devil is the most discontented creature. The devil is the most discontented creature. As much discontent you have is as much of the spirit of Satan that you have. But it's not just the devil. Thanklessness marks the unbelieving world. As Romans 121 says, for, all the, for although they, this is unbelievers, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. If thanklessness marks the unbelieving world, thankfulness, thankfulness ought to mark the Christian. Nothing destroys and divides the body of Christ more than grumbling and complaining. Think of all that happened in the wilderness with the Israelites, with Moses and Aaron and the people as they grumbled and complained. And nothing smooths things out and promotes peace than humble gratitude, than thanksgiving, than a recognition of all that God has done for us in Christ, than thankfulness to God and thankfulness to other people. So let's learn to pray Church, let's learn to pray, church, as Burroughs prayed. Lord, I am nothing. Lord, I deserve nothing. Lord, I can do nothing. I can receive nothing and can make use of nothing on my own. So as we bring our time to a close, all three, the love that binds, the peace that rules, and being thankful, all three form a cohesive whole, like three sides of a triangle. If you're missing one or more sides, you don't have a triangle. You might have an angle, you might have intersecting lines, but you don't have a triangle. And Christian community, true Christian community, must have all three, must have love, peace, and thankfulness. You take one away, then you completely change the picture. If you're missing peace, then even if you think you have love, well, you don't have love. If you're missing love, then you definitely aren't living in peace, definitely not living with thankfulness. All these three are interconnected and essential. So church, most of all, let us put on love. Christians, put on love. Church, put on love, which binds us together in a community of peace and thankfulness. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, as we think about all that Christ has done for us, Lord, we, we, we see so many ways we fall short. So many ways we prefer our ways, our thoughts, our opinions. And God, we want 
love to bind us together. We want the peace of Christ to rule the day. And God, we want to be thankful. Oh Lord, forgive us because we fall short so frequently. Give us much grace and much help to do that which you have taught us and tell us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, before I give our benediction, I have a few just closing instructions for our, for our guests and regular attenders. Uh, we don't have these very often, just a couple of times a year since we are having a family meeting. If you could, uh, we kindly ask you to just pick up your children and from Promise Kingdom and enjoy fellowship uh, outside on, on the lawn. Uh, and members, please stay in your seats and uh, pick up your kids after the family meeting. And those taking Explore can head over to the lounge where Pastor Rick will be teaching today. And uh, Tim will be starting our family meeting in just a minute or two. And now, church, please go with this. May the God of love, the God of peace, and the God of eternal joy grant you this week grace and power from on high to put on love, grace and power to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, grace and power to be thankful. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.